well, I am going to remove my mask uh, and I'm going to take liberties. <clears throat> I had COVID uh, last month and the doctor gave me great news and said, you no longer can um, get it, but you can't give it. Uh, so that was sort of my license to start hugging again. Uh, but I also want to wear glasses and I just can't keep it up with that. But out of respect and space here, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to not wear my mask. Uh, so I'm not that guy going into places saying, I don't have to wear a mask anymore. I'm not going to pick that fight. You know, uh, about a month ago, I visited some dear friends, uh, my friends Morgan and Kathy, and uh, we were having a conversation about Kathy's friends. Kathy has these friends who are about 25 years older. Uh, they're in their late 70s, and she just has this special relationship with these older women, and... Um, she was describing that she went to, um, one of her friends got a new car, and she was so excited to call her and tell her about all the bells and whistles of her new car. And as she's describing all the features, she says, but I think I need to go back. She goes, well, what's wrong with it? She goes, well, there's a backup camera that works, but there's the, the one that... I think... That's your windshield. Um, you, you're the camera facing forward. And I thought that was such a beautiful... Christmas ...of this seminal event that happened 2,000 years ago, like this birthday party for Jesus that we keep celebrating. And while that's true, it's half of the story. Because we lack a real clear vision. is coming again. And so we need a forward-facing vision of the future, particularly when we look at Christmas. And here's the thing. Advent is supposed to help us do just that. by the words of John the Baptist when it said, prepare the way of the Lord, which you can't just whisper those words. It feels like a... huge proclamation. But John the Baptist was the one who spoke those words. But actually, he was quoting Isaiah. And we're going to take a moment to go back to the words of Isaiah, speaking about not just Christ coming as the Messiah first time, but in the second coming. Now, what we see in this grand theme uh, of, of proclaim the way of the Lord is the picture that we get is that we need to be prepared for the second coming. And to do that, we need to go back to the Old Testament. We need to go back to the prophets. We need to go back to John the Baptist to see what it is they were waiting for at that time. Remember, these were people who waited centuries for the coming Messiah. They read the prophecies. They understood the scrolls. They understood these wise men traveled thousands of miles to, to find the Christ child. But what we can get from studying the scriptures and looking at these is a glimpse into their waiting. It's like our spiritual fathers and mothers had paved out a pathway in faith in their perseverance and in their faith, in their hope, amidst a very difficult time with health, with finances, with a messed up government. And so, friends, what you and I are experiencing today, 
gains a lot of traction and a lot of hope and a lot of relevant teaching when we begin to understand their story is a lot like our story. Now, this is the second week of Advent, which we are kind of framing in this theme of God's love. And to do that, I want to look at three things that we can learn from this Advent theme of love. And that the thing that we're waiting for, ultimately, is the restoration of all things. That's what we put our hope in. That this world isn't just an end in and of itself. That we don't just get to live some 80-some-odd, 90-some-odd years and just try and endure hardship and put our hope in something that we can't really see. No. of all things. And so the first thing that I want to point out is that God's love restores equality. Now, if you have ever been in a situation where you felt like a non-equal, there's great hope. And in the words of Isaiah, he says these words in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Listen to the imagery of this and what he's really doing. He's talking about equality. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has... where it's just the plains. No, he's saying this picture of equality. He's saying that when, when we, whatever we use to sort of distance ourselves, and void, because we stand bare before the God, before God, there, there, there is this even playing field at the foot of the cross. And so we get this idea that God is going to even out the playing field, a world without distinction for class, without distinction for race, for power, for privilege. God kind of equality, but we don't have to just wait for there and then. That can be part of our calling, our commission as Christians today to work towards evening the playing field. One of the initiatives we're doing right now is a Be the Bridge group. We have 18 people meeting every month to, to, to kind of as a pilot group to rehearse the idea of racial this topic led by our Be the Bridge um, groups. There's 18 of them, a, a nine in a men's group, a nine in a women's group that's going to guide us through this, this prayer meeting at the beginning of the year. I can't think of a better way to begin, but that's part of the hope that we have in God's love who restores equality. And this is what John was calling people to when he stood up and he says, prepare your hearts. 
Well, what he was talking about was a kind of repentance. He wanted you to have a sensitive heart that you would be able to turn from and then at other times turn toward. There was this encouragement that you would respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and respond out of love, not obligation. And so prepare your hearts to turn, to turn from fear, to turn from insecurity, to turn from scarcity, to turn from bias, and turn towards generosity, towards love. This is the picture. The second thing that he talks about is that God's love restores justice. That is a kind of love that I can get behind. So when we talk about God's love and the restoration of our things, he's restoring equality, but he's also going to restore justice. Now, here's the secret ingredient to love. Well, I'm okay, you're okay, and no one ever gets better. But if you get truth without grace, then you get a rigid legalism. But it's only when we combine grace and truth does God's love have the power to transform lives from the inside out. This is really compelling to me. And, and the reason why it's compelling is that God isn't just sitting up above being tolerant of what's going on in our world. He's not sitting passively by while men and women do what's right in their own eyes. God has a view towards judgment this, where we will all give an account for our lives in response to God's love. Now, we don't like to talk about judgment. We, we don't like to even think about God's judgment because that feels very personal and that feels like, well, like I'm being outed and I already know it. But understand this, judgment is the exact thing that you and I want. Do we want to continue to live in a world where greed and corruption, where abuse and racism are allowed to go unchecked? Or do we want a God who says, no, 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 there is going to be a day of reckoning out of love to restore things to how I originally intended them? This is what we have to look forward to in the second coming. But this is what we get to participate in here and now. Now, the third thing that we see out of God's love is this beautiful picture of God's love restores relationship, specifically human dignity. And, and um, we get this verse out of John 3, 17 and 19, and it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, and their deeds were evil. See, God has been trying to work out this path towards love, this, this worldly alternative to restore the world as he intended it. And so even as Christianity came onto the scene as a new social order, it was a radical alternative to what was already considered the social norms of its day. And so we have this picture in the early days, it wasn't supposed to simply be the right doctrine but it was a community, peculiar and distinct. It was this new community that would be set apart. And so the very definition is 
how we gather in community, how we practice faith in community so that we don't live out our spiritual lives on an island thinking that we can be transformed because there's no, there's, there, we just can't self-help our way to transformation. It's, it's just not going to work. And so there's this distinct way where Christianity is introduced. And there was the idea that there was a message to be proclaimed, but there was actually tangible and literal good news to be delivered. Do you know that by the fourth century, Christians, the church, was feeding in Rome up to 20,000 people per week. There was this way that people were being undignified because if you didn't have anything, there was no welfare system, there was no food stamps, there was, no, there was babies that were burdensome and left on the street, and these were the beginnings of the early church where they put themselves in poverty's way, where they put themselves in harm's way, where they put themselves in a place to say, God's love has been given to me. Why should I withhold it from them? And that was the testimony. That was the proclamation. I was reading um, an article during quarantine by a guy by the name of Lyman Stone. Lyman Stone is the chief information officer of a group uh, called Demographic Intelligence. It's a population consulting firm. And he did an amazing story, but he was articulating what the Christian movement, Christianity has been through the ages. Because I hear so much talk that 2020 is like no other year. Well, actually, there's some really comparable years. If we go back to the plague and the Spanish flu, there were things in, in, in Philadelphia back during the 19, well, 1919 where people were arguing over wearing masks. And Philadelphia didn't wear masks. And much of the city died because they were non-maskers. Does that sound like today? We are not living in, in, in uncharted territory, but this is what Lyman Stone had to say when he began to like, report on, on what was going on. He had a really interesting commentary. He said, something that we have quickly forgotten in the age of antivirals and personal protective gear is the sheer fear of the possibility of sickness like this would instill in others. If you interacted with someone in the plague in 1350 or the Spanish flu in 1918, there was a real possibility that you would get it and die. The prayer, see if you ever prayed this, if I die before I wake, may, my soul, uh, may the Lord beg my soul to take, was a real plea not just simply a bedtime prayer. Now, the Christian motive for hygiene and sanitation doesn't arise simply for self-preservation, but an ethic to serve and to love our neighbor as ourself. So while I might not be a carrier, I'm gonna carry the mask because I wanna build a culture of respect, right? And so what he's describing is we wish to care for the afflicted, which first means not infecting the healthy. So we treat it with respect and we treat it with reverence and care. That's part of the Christian ethic. But he says early Christians created the first hospitals in Europe as hygienic places to provide care during the times of plague. But Christians are a people for whom hospitality towards the minority and potentially infected is a central virtue, one that undergirds Christian tradition and to practice modern medicine whether we know it or not. This was all birthed out of the Christian movement. The word hospitality is where we get the word hospital. It comes from the Latin word of hospice, meaning guest or, or a, 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 a host. 
the first prototype of the hospital arose from medieval monasteries and Catholic nuns and, and, and monks were housing strangers in need of lodging and nourishment. These medieval institutions were centered around the singular conviction that to serve the stranger was to serve Christ himself. That cliche, that metaphor, oh, the church, it's just a hospital for sinners, enjoyed profound new depth. See, here's the thing. God is eternally uh, selfless and sacrificial. That's how God's love is. It is always outreaching, outward in its focus. It is always outgoing in its delivery. That's how God's love is. And it's the thing that I have witnessed leads people to do irrational things. God's love compels us to do irrational things that the world can't understand. It, it causes people to move to all corners of the world. It, it, it causes people, God's love changes a career path, do irrational things with their finances or serve their neighbors or beginning with the church family just out of pure volunteerism or to serve and make the city a place of peace and prosperity. God's love is the most compelling force. So the question that we end up with is, what will we do with God's love? Because it comes to us in the form of a baby, but it's coming to us in the form of the restoration of all things. And we don't have to wait to there and then. It's here and now. The kingdom of God means that we get to enjoy dual citizenship. And as an ambassador of heaven, I want to bring a little more heaven on earth where hell on earth already prevails. Tonight, we're going to take communion together. But I also want to have the offering baskets up here. For those of you who don't know, we have a practice here, uh, a dollar for every head that's gathered and every head that we count that's online. Uh, we set aside a dollar. And that's just what we call our good neighbor fund. It's not a tithe or an offering. It's just church with a cover charge because we set aside that money because one of our rhythms is the practice of generosity. And over the last year... We've given away probably over $6,000 to meet needs during quarantine. We're a small church. That's a big chunk. But that's where we wanted to put our investment. So if no other reason, come with your good neighbor fund. If you have a tithe or a check or an offering, the reason I want to make it part of that is in the early church, part of coming to remember Christ's sacrifice he said, do this in remembrance of me. And I don't know what it's like for you, but I can't not think about Christ's sacrifice for me and be reminded of my own need to bring my offering, my small modicum, my, my little sacrifice to say, yes, I will do this in remembrance of me, of you. And then there's the picture that he says, where he holds up these elements and he talks about brokenness. And this has been a year where we resonate. We understand brokenness, <clears throat> broken healthcare or, 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 or broken government or, or, or you know, broken marriages. Or This has been a year where we re really identify with brokenness like we haven't before. But he says, this is my body and it's been broke for you. And then he says, take this cup. This is my blood. I'm not gonna just leave you at the grave. I'm gonna make a provision for new life. And so there's this picture that I, I want us to capture. Now, 
couple of things that we want to do just to work out logistically. We have some ushers that are going to dismiss you by row, and then we're going to come through. Here's what I'd like. I know that we have some children in here, and this is the groundwork that I'm going to put down for how we take communion. We want our kids to really understand not just the what, but the why of communion. And if you've never had that conversation with your kids where you've talked about what they've told you what communion means and why it's important to take it, then I would ask kids, you let mom and dad just take communion on their own, okay? That's on me, that's not on mom and dad. You can't get mad at them, get mad at me. So if there's any problems, I'll solve it or I'll fight it. But we want this time to be a time where we examine our own hearts. Examination is one of the most important things we can do when we come to the altar and we take the cup and we look at the, 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 the bread and we say, Lord, will you search my heart? Because I don't want to be unworthy of your sacrifice. I don't want to misplace the gift that you've already given to me. And so I want you to use this time as we kind of dismiss by Rose. Um, Dalen and Damaris will be up here. Um, the band would come up. We're going to make this into a time of worship. And then we're going to return to our seats. And then I'll come back up and we'll partake together. Okay? So if, if you can help with that, um, Bjorn, if you can help, and, and Buddy will help um, dismiss by row, if you guys can, can work out, that would be great. So let me pray for us as we go into this time uh, of worship, of communion with the Lord. God, we understand that all of this is done because you first loved us. And this is no repayment plan. It simply operates in your currency and your confidence of love. So as we approach the Lord's table tonight, reminded of his sacrifice, we're reminded of his love that seeks to restore all things. And then we'll just hold on to the elements as you return to your seats and I'll come back up.